0: This is the Money Talks Podcast with Michael Campbell.
1: Welcome to Money Talks. Yes, I'm glad you're with me. And I think you're going to be glad too. You should see the show we've got lined up for you here. It's our first podcast only presentation here. And I've got James Thorne. I love talking to him, Chief Market Strategist for Wellington Altus. There's so much to talk about. I'm going to actually ask, though, also, how important is the election campaign outcome for your stocks and investments and overall the Canadian economy? But we'll go in many other directions. I've also got Victor Adair. I want to follow up with him about the impact of China's crackdown on their technology companies. Cost something in the neighborhood of $400 billion when it comes to North American investors investing in China. That's obviously important. Plus, Michael Levy says he's got a freebie for me. We never get to talk free lunch here. He's got one. Plus, I've got Ozzy Jurek. It seems like affordable housing, et cetera. Real estate was on the campaign trail this week. I want to get his take. The election campaign is in full swing, even if it looks like most Canadians aren't engaged. Maybe not a surprise, given the new Delta variant restrictions in B.C., Manitoba and Quebec this week. And I think it's a good bet that the tens of thousands of people in in B.C. impacted by wildfires or those firefighters who are taking those fires on are not taking time out to talk about the latest political pandering. But I guess that's not going to stop me today because I was looking at a newly released poll by Meru. Echoing the one in July by Nanos, both finding that the top election issues for Canadians revolve around the economy, uh, taxation, deficit, jobs, climate change. As I say, very similar to the polls that were done before the 2019 election. Specifically, the Meru poll found that the cost of living and affordability is the number one concern, with 28% of the public citing it. Number two, at 23%, was preserving the economy, reducing greenhouse gases and climate change followed by 19% citing getting federal spending under control and deficits with them. And with jobs in the economy at 17%, they rounded out the top concern for voters. So here's my big insight. By the way, my tongue's firmly in my cheek, because this is pretty obvious, but it seems to be one that's very difficult for some people to grasp. And that is that every one of these issues comes back to economics and finance, and dare I say it, monetary policy. But it's more than that. They come back to government policy being the biggest factor impacting every one of these concerns. I'll give you an example. Cost of living and affordability. Well, pretty obvious given that taxation, other than government transfers and, or on top of those transfers and regulation, costs the average family more than food, clothing, and shelter combined. You know, people complain about gasoline prices. But many don't seem to appreciate that depending where you live, as much as a third of the cost at the pump is government taxation. You know, for all the talk about oil companies gouging or gasoline retailers or the refiner, nobody makes more money from the sale of a liter of gas than government. In Vancouver, motorists pay the highest gasoline taxes in North America. And keep in mind that high gas prices increase the cost of transportation of goods. So that means that increased cost gets passed on to consumer in the form of higher prices. And housing. Well, there's a lot of talk about affordability on the campaign trail this week by federal parties. But none of it about the amount that government adds to the cost of a new home, despite the fact that the C.D. Howe Institute uh, estimates that the cost of taxation and regulation by the three levels of government on new homes adds tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to the price. As much as $644,000 to the cost of a new single detached house in Vancouver, $264,000 in Victoria, $152,000 in Calgary. Well, that should be the election issue. I find it amazing how many people are concerned about reducing greenhouse gases and climate change, but they don't seem to make the connection with a strong economy. I mean, let's face it, action is facilitated by a strong economy, not a weak one. But more than that, we're told the key to making significant progress is through the transition to renewable energy and electric vehicles. And yes, there seems to be very little recognition, though, that the transition requires a huge increase in the production of resources like copper or nickel, aluminum, lithium, rare earth minerals. And as I said in a recent business comment, what's noteworthy is coming into this election is that not a single party has a practical, workable plan to either produce or obtain the raw materials necessary to expedite the transition to renewable energy and electric vehicles. I mean, if greenhouse gas emissions and climate change are your priority, you might want to notice that. You should also notice the role that China is going to play, including in Afghanistan, where it's already developing what will be the world's second largest copper mine. Plus, the Pentagon thinks that one Afghanistan region has the world's largest deposit of lithium, along with massive reserves of rare earth minerals. This is why the Chinese are interested in Afghanistan. It increases their domination of rare earths, which are essential to the transition to renewables. You know, we don't have a plan, but I'll tell you, China clearly does. The federal borrowing and spending, though, is clearly a financial issue. Actually, monetary policy, given that the Bank of Canada creation of money in order to buy government bonds in order to pay for the spending, along with keeping interest rates at record lows, which, by the way, is the number one reason demand has pushed housing prices so high. And finally, people concerned about jobs in the economy, in a nutshell, that should be translate to a concern about our ability to attract capital investment. Right now, we're at a generational low in bringing capital into the country, because without people investing in the economy, of course, you're not going to get at jobs or economic growth. So when you look at all of the reasons expressed in consecutive polls, and I'm not going to be surprised that this doesn't change as we go through the rest of the election, you've got to remember, it comes back to economic and financial policy. That's what you should be keeping an eye on. And not surprisingly, it's what I'll be keeping an eye on today and every week until the election. So stay with us right here on Money Talks. Well, I'll tell you, I love to talk something free. That's good change. Well, maybe not from governments, but when I talk about one of the companies stepping up and saying, how do you like a free lunch? Michael Levy's here to chat with me about it. What about it, Mike? All these stock traders out there or stock investors, that kind of thing, maybe they buy for a mutual fund or what have you. We're talking free.
2: How would you like the fact that your stock trading costs you less than your lunch and you're only having a sandwich for lunch? Okay, <laughs> for sure. National Bank Financial, that's Canada's sixth largest lender, uh, came out with their new commission rates on. Online trading uh, this is National Bank online, and all the chartered banks, basically all the chartered banks have online trading, but they've cut their commissions so significantly that the numbers are big fat zero. You want to trade with national bank financial, you want to trade stocks, you want to trade what, whatever you trade um, you're you're going to be able to do it at zero commission uh, they're calling it the most competitive online brokerage fee structure on the Canadian market. Of course, if you're charging zero, it is going to be the most. I going to say,
1: <laughs> and, and but, we're also talking exchange traded funds and not just stocks and, you yeah. know, that kind of stuff. Uh, this is going to be interesting, Mike. Uh, do, you, do you have any idea what other banks are charging right now to give a, a comparison here?
2: Well, I'm going to um, have a uh, reaction to this one, Mike. Um, I'm at Royal Bank, RBC Direct. I'm paying nine ninety five. And apparently, I'm up at the higher end of the spectrum, but it's anywhere from about four ninety five to nine ninety five a trade, and that undercuts. Oh, I mean, it just undercuts all the big bank fees. TD Direct Investing is seven dollars to nine ninety nine. Bank of Nova Scotia five to ten dollars. CIBC four ninety five to six ninety five, and RBC at six ninety five to nine ninety five. So th- this is following the uh, path that has taken place in the United States, Mike, about uh, uh, free online trading. And now that National Bank has done it, guess what's going to happen?
1: Yeah, I, that's what's going to be so interesting, eh, is what how this is going to reverberate throughout the entire industry. We'll see how they do. I mean, uh, people, of course, have other ways of investing. They have wealth advisors. They have their own financial uh, advisors doing things, but this is kind of attractive. Well, obviously, it's attractive when you're not charging anything for a trade. And as you say, we have examples in the U.S. that's made a hum- tremendous impact. So, yeah, I'm going to sit back and say this is going to be fascinating what the ripple effect is through the rest of the banking and financial industry.
2: Uh, Mike, it is going to be. And I, I, I think it was only a matter of time between or before Canada followed the U.S. And it's not like the banks are not going to make anything on Uh, the uh, uh, residual that you have uh, in your account, the money that you've got sitting there in cash and not invested, they get to use that cash and make a small return on it. Mm -hmm. And that's fine, because if it's sitting in a brokerage account, in a cash account, you're making literally nothing on it anyway. So may as well be sitting with an online trader or broker. and, And they also are going to get a little bit back in fees from what you buy. There might be Fees that come back to them, small amounts, uh, a fraction of a percent, let's say, for a mutual fund. So it's not like they're doing it for free, but they are. They're getting that and they're getting that part of your business. And Mike, don't don't even think for a moment that this isn't a hook to get the rest of your business.
1: Yeah. And of course, that's the name of the game when uh, huge financial institutions, of course, they help us with our mortgages as a, you know, as a simple example there. Obviously, you're right. We've got savings accounts. We've got other banking uh, issues going on with them. So, yeah, I just think that's a fabulous thing. And As I say, Mike, I love to be able to start uh, off on Money Talk saying, hey, we got a freebie for you. So, thanks for bringing that to us.
2: And and Mike, it, it is for every one of our listeners, because The name of the show, Money Talks and Investing. That's what they're doing. So if we can save them a buck or 10 bucks, that's what we're here for.
1: Thanks, Mike. Have a great weekend. You too, Mike. Time now for the quote of the week. And I've chosen one from the former spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion, and now she's the founder of the pro-nuclear campaign group Emergency Reactor. Her name is Zeon Lights, and I chose it for two reasons. I'll tell you about it after I read you the quote. A co-founder of Extinction Rebellion claimed that billions of people would die due to climate change by the end of the century. I refused to defend that claim. It became a huge internal issue in Extinction Rebellion. There were lots of people on my side saying we should retract the claim. And there were lots of people saying that if it woke people up, it didn't matter. I don't think this is helpful. All that happens is predictions don't play out. And then people think the whole thing is a hoax. Well, first point is that the admission that the claim was actually false with the rationale that, in their words, if it woke people up, that's okay. This is the accusation leveled at climate alarmists, many times aided by the media. We see a lack of integrity in the statements, or what some people call the noble lie, being done for what those same people say is the public good. We got that with COVID also. Dr. Anthony Fauci admitted at the outset of the pandemic he lied about masks being ineffective, only to change. The public pronouncements—what it was, it, June, July last year—but he said he did it because he didn't want the public running out and buying up needed supplies that should be uh, there for healthcare workers. But here's the question: Should we? Uh, that I think we should ask, and that is, in the end, is that an effective strategy? Does misleading the public on purpose an effective way of influence, or does it actually fuel distrust? Or, as Neo and Light said, When the prediction doesn't play out, people think the whole thing is a hoax. So she didn't go along. The second aspect is the intense debate, by the way, in the climate change community itself. This is something that has been so consistently overlooked by the Canadian media, who presents them like a monolith. And I'll tell you, one of the key areas is the dispute over the nuclear power supply. As I say, simply put, it's misleading and goes nowhere to suggest there's not this division. I mean, there's not one more pronounced, by the way, than renewable versus uh, nuclear power. For example, James Hansen is Al Gore's climate advisor, the scientist who literally started the global warming worry in 1988. But he's in the group of activists that says renewables cannot get the job done. They need nuclear. He says in quotes, suggesting that renewables will let us phase rapidly off fossil fuels in the U.S., China, India, or the world as a whole, is almost the equivalent of believing in the Easter bunny and the tooth fairy. Well, there you have it. I think it's a fascinating thing. I think we should explore these divisions more fully, and especially the role of nuclear power. Boy, one of my favorite people to get a chance to chat with and get his perspective on the investment markets, and sometimes the bigger picture, is James Thorne. He's the chief market strategist at Wellington Altus Private Wealth. Jim, thanks for finding time for us. Much appreciated. And I wanted to start by just getting a little bit of a context for our federal election here vis-a-vis should I be worried about my stocks or is it just a non-event or what have you? Give us your perspective, please. Well, let, let's just pull back a little bit, right? And 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 let's what we're
0: what we suggest and what we're talking with to our clients at Wellington is the fact that COVID 19 and the Delta variant is, is, is going to change the way we do things. And so, and, and I don't really think people have priced that in. The scarring effects of COVID 19 are, are here to stay. Add on to that the Build Back Better green agenda and income inequality that the central bankers and, and, and policymakers are, are, are focused on. And you get to the point where we're going to be in a new era where fiscal policy as a contribution of GDP, is going to be much important and much larger. Go back, Michael, to the 70s or the 50s when it was almost 40% of GDP. So this modern monetary theory where deficits don't matter is, I think, the way we're going to do it and and, and allow risk assets to, to, to live. If we raise interest rates too much, too quickly, if we take the punch bowl away, contract... Balance sheets of the Federal Reserve and central banks too quickly. And if we raise taxes too quickly, then we're in a period of time where risk assets are going to be significantly hurt. And so we don't think that's the narrative, but boy, oh boy, are we on the lookout to basically make sure if, as and when. We get policy mistakes. We do not think the policymakers are omnipotent, right? They do make mistakes. If there are policy mistakes, we need to have a a game plan
1: in place for for evasive action. But one of the things that's interesting is, for example, the prime minister coming out and saying they're going to raise taxes on financial institutions, you know, namely the banks, you know, sort of a populist target to some degree. Well, that certainly says, well, that is going to impact the markets directly. If you're uh, following the lead coming out of the Biden administration, who are literally saying the same things, you know, in the Build Back Better agenda, uh, you know, they're talking about a significant increase in corporate taxes. And I would think that's got to overhang the market, at least until that's reserved.
0: Yeah, let's, uh, let's see if they do it. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of stuff is said uh, promises are made during the election. I, I, I uh, you know, taxing financial institutions, taxing capital, taxing innovation is not the way to go as yeah. far as I'm concerned. And, and, and if if Mr. Trudeau does that, well, then we have to re- really consider, you know, about investing in Canada and having assets in Canada.
1: Uh, and let's see so. if he does it, if he gets in power. Uh, yeah, and I am want to broaden it past one party. I mean, all the parties, if they're going to talk about, this is the thing that sort of kills me. On the one hand, we need capital investment. I mean, that's, you know, if people don't invest money in our country, maybe to expand a business, maybe just hire more people, maybe to get technological, uh, that kind of stuff. Well, you're not growing the economy. And so I don't think that's fully appreciated. I mean, we've had a generational decline, according to the C.D. Howe Institute, in capital investment. And I've been saying to people, that's my number one issue, because what doesn't fall from economic growth? You know, that's one of the themes of money talks is to say, well, if you want healthcare, if you want to help the poor, if you want to help the homeless, all of those issues will come back to a strong economy being, being far more uh, you know, beneficial than a weak one. So I look at capital investment and I start seeing these. It seems like a, a really confused. Uh, yes, we want to have renewable energy, but we want to discourage the capital investment that would make it happen. Wow.
0: Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting. So the way I square the circle is if you go back to the late 40s and early 50s, so my whole narrative is, is we're in a post-World War II reconstruction. And in that period of time, uh, public investment or public participation within gross domestic product peaked at 40%. And then went down to, it's about 15% right now. The average over that period of time between 45 and today is about 26%. I think we can get back to the trend line or the average, which which means we need government. The private sector in certain areas have had decades to basically build it out privately. They haven't done it. So we need public investment. That's fine. Um, It's how you finance it. Right. And and my my hand, we've been talking about populism for as long as I've met you, known you, Michael. Mm -hmm. I don't think the populist movement is going to allow taxes to be raised too much. Right. We are in a midterm election year and next year in the United States, if they raise taxes too much, the Democrats lose the House and the Senate. And and I know it's not reported up here, but, you know, Trump is selling out on his his campaign trail speeches like the rise of populism is even stronger now in the United States. than it was look at all the the, the 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 social uh, disruption that's happening in Europe with the masks and the anti-vaxxers. Look at all the protests in Australia. It's not going down. It's actually intensifying. So. You know that's where I I hang my hat on the way we get out of it, and I don't know the amp. But the way you get out of it is basically you, you you invoke modern monetary theory, where you say deficits don't matter.
1: But we come back to one addition to that is that is you know uh, inflation. We just got the uh, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, I think it was, uh, you know, during this week, came out and said the their average, you know, when they talk to mid and small businesses, saying. Their average expectation is 3.8%, the highest they've ever had since they've been recording it. And I always tell people, just remember, that's like a pay cut, you know, because you're not got as much. But guess who benefits, as you well know, I mean, but it's, hey, I borrowed money, uh, you know, a million bucks today, and I get to pay back and reduce dollars. I can't see the government being particularly unhappy, given they want to institute modern monetary theory with ad, ad infinitum deficits. They don't mind inflation. It hurts individuals, but the government doesn't mind. Right. So so
0: on the structural side, we have three things, right? We've got we've got, you know, the digitization of the global economy or how you would say it is every company is a tech company. That's deflationary. We've got debt, debt to GDP. That is deflationary and demographics are deflationary. And then on the other side, we have short term inflation caused by COVID, caused by demand being pulled forward and caused by supply chain bottlenecks. I think that pull push and pull is going to be uh around going to allow inflation to hang around the two percent target. And I think the Fed and the Fed, central bankers are going to do what they did after World War II because they can't raise interest rates. Michael, the Federal Reserve has their, their terminal interest rate for the Fed funds at 2.5%. If they raise that to two and a half percent, forget about ta- forget about everything. We're wiped out. Yeah. They can't do it. So we're we're suggesting that the Fed has a light touch, talks loudly but carries a very very small stick. Starts tapering uh, later this year, not in September, and we don't see them raising. They can't raise interest rates. Yes. That, that's that's the that's the thing that the elephant in the room. They can't raise interest rates, and so in that type of environment, um, we think if it all risk assets will do okay. But we're talking, I'm giving you a perfect golf shot where there's a lot of danger on the golf hole. Like, you know, if, mm-hmm. if, if Prime Minister Trudeau raises taxes too much, if they tax financial institutions and innovations in the country, in the United States, in Canada, in the Western world, there is a huge amount of risk that could happen. We don't think it's going to happen. We have to give a base case, but boy, oh boy, a
1: misstep could had to happen at any step along the way. Yeah, my complaint has been, uh, obviously, there had to be some borrowing. If you're going to shut down the economy, you're going to have to borrow and you're going to help, have to help people out who are now out of work or their business is shut through no fault of their own. I don't think they handled it over the year, over the 16 months, uh, as targeted as it had to be, you know, as we went forward. Uh, so that's one thing. But they've been suggesting there's been no risk at all to this approach. That's what drives me crazy. There is a risk. As you say, uh, you know, we have to pay attention if there's any kind of a a public policy mistake. And I can see the Federal Reserve right now is crying every night because, as as you know, they raised rates in uh, the fall of 2018. And we had about a 20% haircut in the market in about six weeks or whatever it was. They don't want that. They can't have that. So that's why there's been so much discussion. But this is what also uh, surprised me about the prime minister's remark. He doesn't think about monetary policy. And I'm going, who do you think's got all the cards here? It is a central banker's world.
0: Yes, the, the last piece we wrote about was on, de, you know, the, de, the case for deflation. And what mm-hmm. we did was we focused on a book called The Princes of the Yen, which was following the, the Bank of Japan during the 1970s mm-hmm. and 1980s. And the the hidden lead in that book is, 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 you know, central bankers really have a lot of power on how the economy, what what the economy looks like, right? Right. And that's why we were so focused on, uh, you know, the build back better and income inequality was because that's what the central bankers were talking. That's what Mark Carney was talking about when he was head of the Bank of England. What is ironic about that is that there are certain individuals, and this is where I counter on the inflation Right. There are certain individuals that we see on TV all the time that were big proponents of secular stagnation. And we're pounding the drum that we will never get two percent inflation. Well, and and they also say that the central bank shouldn't focus on income inequality in the green economy. Right. Well, now we finally have two percent inflation. And he says and they say that inflation is permanent. Well, Let's see. That's the whole point. Let's see. Because, you know, the, the scarring effects, and there has been studies by the Fed done this, the scarring effects of, of COVID suggest that interest rate, the risk-free interest rate, declines somewhere between 70 basis points to a percentage and a half. That's so, so the risk The risk is still there. We could, I I, I invoke in my next piece, um, Gandhi, about when he sits there and say, you have to have patience or you're going to lose the battle. Michael, if they tighten too quickly, if they rate taxes too much, then we have, you know, we go into the Japanification of the Western world and we won't get out of it, right? That's why we think that we have to be patient here. See what this COVID thing looks like. See what the reopening economy looks like. And if we reopen and, and everything seems to be okay and we get a handle on it, then let's start to tighten a little bit, right? Let's start the journey. But to do it now, when we haven't even gone through a flu season, right? I mean, it's just, it, it's breathless. But that's where I get, then I, I, I calm down. And, and it, there is a very famous speech by Ben Bernanke. Uh, At the New York Economic Club in 2002, when he focuses on, you know, post-World War II, you know, reconstruction, he said the way the Fed controlled inflationary expectations is through communication. Look at all the hawks that just came out today at Jackson Hole saying, we're going to raise, we're going to raise, we're going to raise. That's controlling inflationary expectations.
1: They couldn't raise rates after World War II. And they could... Sorry, as someone yourself, uh, your background is long in this business. You've managed literally and advised on on billions and billions of dollars. So this is just a simple question. So I look at at least short term inflation. You know, we see that the supply chain problems probably extend into next year. Uh, You know, so we have short term inflation expectations, let's say. I'm kind of wondering, seriously, on a major level, why would a, a major institution own bonds? Uh, at this point, when you're getting whatever off the top of my head, 1.3% in a ten year, and I know inflation at least is going to eat some of that up over the next year, so I'm just wondering why? Why do they do that?
0: They don't. I mean, you have very important people like Ray Dalio, uh, the head of Bridgewater, which is the largest head fund, saying I would rather own crypto, yes, than bonds, and yep. and and the reason why is in, in terms of innovation. Michael, you can now in the United States, and this is why Jamie Dimon has changed his tomb on on crypto, is you can purchase, let's say, $100,000 worth of crypto of Ethereum, and it's called staking, and you can lend that out at 8%. Now, wait a minute. I can lend out crypto. So what if I, hypothetical, right? What if I lend it out at 8% and I'll give 2% of that to JP Morgan to guarantee my principal? So Mm -hmm. now I'm getting 6%. On crypto yes. right why do i want to own a 10-year bond that's basically earning 1.2 percent and it's being debased completely because of modern monetary theory yes that's where we are and so so for your listeners i mean this is this is ser- being the the you know the status quo is changing as we speak and the forces of innovation and populism are, are 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 they're unstoppable. And so we have to uh recognize that be respectful of that, but also at the same time where you realize that you invoked uh, a Powell, well, what about um, you know the ECB raising interest rates in 2008 when they said that the finan- global financial crisis was isolated to the US financial system. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. I mean, so so it's 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 you have to have you be very it's very heady days, and the last thing I would say, which is so important to your listeners, is the fact that retail investing is driving the bus now, right? The advent of people moving jobs and not having defined contribution pensions and everybody having RRSps and four hundred one k means that retail investors are more important to the market than institutional investors. Yeah. And they don't want to say that to you. They don't want it to let you know. But for, for, for your listeners, is this is why it's so important to get educated, recognize the context, as you say, yeah. and then try to figure out how to invest money through that context.
1: Well, I know this is a broad question because, and I want to just let everyone know, you always look at your own individual circumstances. You look at your own risk aversion. You talk with a financial advisor. So that's the caveat as I put this out there. But let's talk about a general approach to someone's money at this point, Uh, whether it's that portion that's fixed income, if any, the portion that might be, I mean, does crypto have a place? And I'm talking, I know, Let's talk, you know, Mr. and Mrs. and, you know, everybody's average. And I know that's a broad question, but it gives someone maybe a framework to think about this with. So what kind of things are you thinking people, if you looked at a portfolio, you'd say, I kind of prefer you look like this. So I I, I
0: state let's let's go from the. So let's set this the table on investing. Let's ignore all of the risks right? Yeah. If you you add in demographics with the millennials basically repeating what the baby boomers did in the 80s, where they are in terms of family formation, saving for the retirement, saving for education, Mm -hmm. we are at the beginning of a structural bull market, okay? So, and that ended in 1999 with the baby boomers when that demographic influence on society peaked. The millennials influence on our society peaks somewhere around 2030 to 2033. So we're right now, Michael, back in 1989, 1990. Right. And what we have is the rise of populism, which is forcing status quo change. right? Right. And take out Japan and put in China. Right. So I would suggest to you that if there are not policy mistakes, Then what you need to do is you need to position yourselves for capital appreciations, stocks over bonds, and you have to accept the fact. I'm not saying anything about when I talk about crypto or blockchain, you have to understand that innovation is coming to money. Mm -hmm. Innovation is coming to payment. You You say every company is a tech company. Well, every asset will be digitized, Michael. Yeah, and and, and I don't know if it's so. In the 1990s, you know, it, we didn't know it was Google and Amazon and Facebook. But we knew that technology, computers, and the internet were starting. Blockchain and the digitization of assets is happening right now. It's Ethereum, and and Bitcoin. It may not be right, but that theme is there. So there's your base case. They can't raise rates. They have to make sure that interest rates. Stay low. They have to make sure that taxes don't get too high. And the only way they can basically help the economy adjust mm-hmm. is through fiscal policy, which is blowing out the deficits and debasing currencies. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, in that sense, you want to own stocks over bonds. You want to position yourself for inflation, but not hyperinflation. Right. So and 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 lastly. And this is the hardest part because I hate qualifying it. But you also have to understand how dangerous the situation is and how you have to be able to take risk off the table at a moment's notice. If the prime minister raises taxes too much, if the if the if the prime minister does something I use, I'll use our prime minister as a reference pie. I don't want to make a comment or if policymakers make a, a significant mistake, then you have to adjust quickly. Right. And realize how dangerous the waters are.
1: Um, a couple of things, just, so you know, that's funny. I'm so with you on on the whole uh, DeFi and the changes that are coming to the financial field. and know that uh, at the this year's coming Outlook Conference, the whole first section, you know, we always do a, a focus and uh, the whole first focus is on that very subject, you know, because I think people have to know I'm going to do a lot on it before then. But I'm just saying I, I just couldn't agree more that. Uh, And interesting, we're talking on a podcast. I mean, do you really want to bet on radio? You know, uh, I mean, this is the new way. It's the new, this is what people are doing. You look at the podcast numbers are just absolutely massive. And it's just part of that kind of general trend you're talking about. But uh, one of the things that people would want to know is uh, two two quick questions. One about commodities, you know, as part of this change. I mean, we've been bullish on commodities since uh, the summer of 2019. We put it on the radar big time. And it was because of exactly what you're referring to. You're not going renewable energy. You're not going electric vehicle without a huge increase in commodities, you know, or, or you know, certain ones, but it's a pretty wide, wide range. Uh, and then the other is gold or or gold or silver or other assets of that type that protect you if it is an inflationary environment.
0: Yes. I mean, so, so the way I frame it is, the last time we had a super cycle in commodities, it was the urbanization of China. Mm-hmm. So let's take that out and let's put in build back better. Right. We just you know, it's funny about history. You know, the Americans are going to pass an infrastructure bill, which is larger than the, the bill that built the Internet interstate highways in the United States and had got more votes in the interstate highway policies back in the forties and fifties. Right. So the irony is build back better. Is it commodity intensive? So you have to have that. Now w- w- what I would qualify for because it, it, it's, 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 it's um, retail investing is driving the boat. Yes. And they uh, retail investors mostly uh, invest in ETFs. So the dynamics of the market it's risk on, risk off. So what we talk about is the intense inflationary and deflationary periods. And so what you need to do, your, your listeners need to be able to adjust asset allocate and protect. So let me give you an example. We think, for example, that the Fed is going to push back tapering to the end of this year, right? right. And we think that the, we have fiscal policy coming. They're not going to be able to raise taxes and China is going to have to start to reflate and get their throat off of the technology companies. Right, that yeah. means interest rates are going to go higher and inflation is going to go higher. You're going to want to own cyclicals, banks, and commodities into the end of the year. And you're going to have these short bursts of inflation. And then and then tech, you know, the fangs aren't going to do anything. And then all of a sudden, you know, then, then Powell is going to come out in December and say, we're going to taper and everybody's going to go oh my gosh right and you're going to want to re go go back to digitization so you're going to want to have both and and what you want to be able to do is is be able to manage your tilting of your portfolios given what the policymakers are doing and they're going to be patient and they're going to control their way through this so it's period so I, you have to have so what what am i saying now what are we talking about internally at wellington it's you know, is it, is it a good copper name? Is it a good gold name? Is it a good uranium name? Is right. it a good potash name? You know, now is the time to start adding, right? right? Not in January, right? Same thing with Bitcoin. Now is the time to buy, not in January when it's 100,000. And then fluctuate and change. So we're going to go from these periods of time. And if you understand that, then, then, yeah, you have to have exposure to commodities now. You have to.
1: Yeah. That, that's just a wonderful summation, by the way. That was a terrific summation. And I know that I, I want to make sure we can call on you again in the near future, because as you say, it's a changing environment. You gave me that opening, so you're in trouble. So yep. it's a changing environment. And, and uh, it's just always such a pleasure to get a chance to chat and get your perspective on these things. So, uh, Jim, thanks so much. Thanks. Be safe, Michael. Take care. Well, didn't you notice this week during the campaign, boy, it seems like affordable housing, an old issue. My gosh, how long have we been talking about that? But it was back in the spotlight. We had both conservatives, uh, NDP members and the Liberal government all talking about affordable housing. I want to bring in Ozzy Jerk to get a couple of quick takes here. And Ozzy, the first thing I want to chat about is... I found it was a bit of pandering to have a couple of the major parties focus on foreign ownership and their impact, because my reasoning is very straightforward. We have, had, we have not had much foreign ownership in the Canadian market during the pandemic, and yet we had double-digit gains across the country.
3: Yeah, and that's the key. I mean, the idea was that foreign owners would disturb because they invest in Toronto and Vancouver. Well. Prices went up not just in Toronto and Vancouver, they went up in Barrie, Ontario, and in Kelowna, BC, and all over the country. Not only that, not only all of Canada, it went up in the United States. I mean, it went up from Manila to Hungary, right? You have people, whether you are in in Quebec or whether you are in Rome, prices have soared. There's some other reasons there than foreign buyers. Uh, You know, I alluded to
1: this off the top in my uh, opening comments, but I mean, this has always been a bug of mine. I don't, you know, go ahead and have whatever political philosophy or whatever party you want to uh, follow what kills me though is when it's deception and one of the things they never right. talk about if you're worried about affordable housing is the impact of government policy we also had the prime minister infamously saying he didn't care about monetary policy but you and I have been discussing this uh, since the outset of the pandemic that has been the number one driver monetary policies about interest rates and other things but about interest rates it's the record low interest rates that have driven house prices up, and it hasn't been some sort of foreign ownership move.
3: Yeah, I mean, look at we have in BC, we have a foreign buyers tax already forever. That was yeah. there last year, and we still had prices increase in dramatic fashion between 25 and 35% in the smallest towns in British Columbia, not just in the major cities. The other thing is too, that some of the countries I mentioned, you name Australia and so on, they already have foreign buyer taxes and that's prices are soaring. Yes, you're right. There's something else at work. In my view, we have the world's most unreported inflation of hard assets ever. And I've been arguing about that. I know it's a bit of a hobby horse. I wrote a book in 1998, I wrote a book in 2009. I said it on everyone in the world outlook conferences that I felt that we have this creeping um, hard asset inflation, it's almost invisible. I mean, I did a video in 2011 where I said from 13,000 to 1 million. And I thought this was an incredible ride that we had based on inflation. Well, since 2011, we doubled again to 2 million. So, and it's a worldwide thing. So, to blame either the homeowners, which seem to be now under attack in this, all of these uh, parties' uh, world with the home buyers' rights and, and so on. Now, no, that's not the reason we have poor government policies, we have the federals do one thing, the, the municipal do some another, and the province do a third thing. And they all do their own thing. And they all uh, say, we want to have affordable housing, and none of them create anything new.
1: Well, until they deal with the supply problem head on, then we're not having any solutions here. Uh, let me just go another one that was sort of, because again, it sort of rings a bell with people who haven't looked deeply into the issue. And I want to get your take on this house flipping. Now, here's my thought that if I buy a house today and then I flip it four months later, I've added to the supply. I, I mean, the only thing that you know pushes prices up is if you remove supply from the marketplace. But actual house flipping doesn't really for any length of time. That's the nature of flipping. And I'll add one more thing. And it's not like if you do flip and make money, of course you pay on it. It's called capital
3: gains. Exactly. And if you don't, you're illegal. And you and I talked about that last year. This, this people that uh, say tie up a pre-sale deal at 300,000 and then flip it at 350 somewhere. That 50,000 is taxable gain. If they don't, they're illegal. They're against the Canadian law. It's a, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a crazy kind of an idea. But the flipping idea, I thought was really funny yesterday when the liberal candidate in Vancouver, Mr. Khalif Nahumit, was found to have flipped four houses in the last few years. So I mean, the Liberal candidate who uh, then was, uh, you know, he was on CKWX and they, they interviewed him. He didn't you know what to say. That was not flipping to to move in and out of houses every yeah. four time. And, well, and, that's I mean, politics. What yeah, mean? but I mean, the timing. wasn't opportune for him. The point is this. Yes, you're right. I mean, that so many people it eludes them that if I Sell something and buy something else. I've added something uh, value to it. I mean, the conservatives are not like the liberals in that they, are, they don't encourage foreign investment, but they want to encourage foreign investment in affordable purpose-built rental housing. Well, yeah, good for them. I mean, good for, I'm, I'm a foreign investor and now I'm going to go into rental, build purpose-built housing in many provinces where we have rent control, where we cannot increase the rent. We don't know how, you know, so, so it is really an anti, an anti-investor kind of a thing. And this is, to me, one of the biggest worry that we have a false promise. We are signaling a closed economy and we don't welcome offshore investment.
1: Well, your point is so well taken too. It's, you've got three levels of government. They have not a coordinated policy on affordable. And I want people to understand, social housing is not the affordable housing issue. Completely different. But we've got on the affordable, how much our normal houses or condos or townhouses uh, cost. At three levels, the government have impact, and they definitely aren't working together. And the number one thing they have to do is figure out how to increase supply. Let me just come to one other aspect quickly here. And they talked about uh, banning blind bidding. That means I want to buy a house, and I submit my offer uh, to the realtor, and they look at six offers, and somebody gets the house. Will that have an impact, do you think, if, they, if, if
3: now they have to uh, ex- expose what all the bids are? Well, I think first of all, you pointed out earlier, we have 1.5% interest rates. We have massive worldwide inflation in in almost all hard assets. That's, I mean, Mm -hmm. baseball cards sell for 900,000 and paintings sell for $100 million. So there's something else going on than foreign investing or blind bidding. The blind bidding process that they envision, of course, takes away the rights from the homeowner. In fact, the agent's requirement is to get the best possible price for his owner, and that's that's what they've been doing. But it's also usually in an excess at the top of the market. There is no blind bidding there right now to the same extent.
1: Yeah, and and the point is, let's leave people with this. We'll have lots of chance to talk about it as we go forward, but I just am desperate to get the fact that when we're accepting 1.2 million new people coming into our country, terrific. They're going to, they're going to settle. Well, you need housing, you need supply. It's a supply issue that we have problems with right now. And until someone has, but again, that'll be all three uh, levels of government. I'm not knocking just one level here, but it takes all three levels. And I just think it's a bit of a red herring when they float these things. It's pandering to people who haven't looked deeply into the issue. And Aussie. That's what I can always count you to do is look deeply into the issue, whether it's here with us
3: or on usbuzz.ca. Thanks for having me, Mike, and let's have fun doing this election. We sure will.
1: Let's go live to the trading desk. Victor Dare waits for me there. Vic, you know what? Uh, during the last week, I was thinking about our discussion about Chinese equity markets and how the Chinese government has stepped on the technology companies. And I just think that's, that's a big deal. You know, that reverberates throughout the North American markets, too, let alone it's absolutely killed some North American investors who had Chinese tech.
4: Yeah, the, it, what it seems to be, in a, in a general way to express it, Mike, is that the Communist Party... Z in particular, has put their foot down. You know, these guys are getting maybe too big for their britches uh, that were uh, maybe thinking that they were running the show have been straightened out. You know, the, the party is running the show. They set the rules mm-hmm. and that's really showed up in tech. The tech from the highs, the all time highs, they hit in February is off roughly 40 to 50%. That's a heck of a hit. And by the way, in the meantime, you know, at the same time, I should say, the American tech market is up about 10%. So there's been a huge difference there. What we talked about last week was, is this tremendous sell-off we've seen in Chinese tech going to affect anything else? It seemed, as of last week, it wasn't affecting the U.S. equity markets, but it did weaken the currency markets. Another U.S. dollar got stronger against everything. Uh, commodity markets really got hit in, in particular crude oil down almost 20% from the highs in the last month. And maybe that's where the the nervousness or the risk off tone was showing up.
1: Well, you know, and as I said, like, that's a huge risk factor. Is, uh, I'm not a fan. I, I shouldn't have said that so glibly. I have, you know, I can't even give you the description of what I feel about the Communist Party of China and their human rights abuses. But this adds another massive uh, risk factor if somebody does want to invest in China. And I'm surprised. I know a couple of major companies that are investing in China. And I sit there and I go, uh, and I actually will get a chance to chat with one of the uh, CEOs coming up next week. And I'm, I'm just saying, wow, how do you factor that risk in? Because this is a great example, the way the Chinese communists have stepped on the technology side. And I mean, including confiscating huge amounts of money or saying, guess what, guys, you made this amount of money. But this much of it is going to go into what they call social programs like it was really astounding.
4: Yeah, I think the the catchphrase, I'm going to get this wrong, but the tone of it was they want to make a more equal society. That was their plan. And one of the ways was to invite the leaders of the major companies to make voluntary contributions uh, to, to different things. How this I plays out.
1: Hold on for a sec on that, Vic, because I cannot help but think how reminiscent that is of Klaus Schwab and the Great Reset, stakeholder ca- stakeholder capitalism. I'm just putting that out there. Victor Dare did not say that. Mike Campbell did. <laughs> how do you not notice that? Go ahead, Vic. Sorry. Well, let, let's the, the Canadian dollar, for instance, hit a six-year
4: high. It in the beginning of June. And that was really, I think, you know, we'd had this tremendous run from the lows we hit last year during the COVID crisis in, in March. We got down about 68 cents, ran all the way up to 83 cents, but it was a very, very steady climb. And it was sort of in, in, in harmony with a big climb in the commodity market. And I've, as we discussed on the show, I thought a lot of people were maybe buying the Canadian dollar as an easy way to participate in the commodity market. So. What we saw is a lot of people were buying the Canadian dollar. The speculators in the Canadian dollar had built the largest position they've had in years. So when the Canadian dollar started to come off uh, from its highs, and we, we dropped all the way to 77 cents last week, a lot of that selling was people who had been bulled up on the Canadian dollar having to liquidate their positions. So Canada probably got a little oversold last week down at 77 cents. We bounced as much as two and a half cents this week. Now, that's a big move in the Canadian dollar. And I'm thinking we've got low volume at this time of the year. It's the late summer that the fall off and then the bounce back we had in the Canadian dollar. Similar pattern, by the way, in crude oil uh, may have been
1: exaggerated
4: because of the thinness of conditions here late in the summer.
1: You just answered my last question here, which was you as a trader. And you look at this time of year, you know, it's a heavy holiday time, obviously coming into uh, Labor Day and that weekend. Does that get you to pull back a little bit or do you look for opportunities that because of that uh, shallow trading?
4: Uh, the easy way to answer that, Mike, is that I'm always looking for opportunities. But this time of the year, I'm definitely trading smaller size.
1: Yeah, Interesting stuff as always. Vic, I want to just tell people to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. As I say, you know me. I love the chart you put there. The old uh, picture tells a thousand words, and it really does give you an idea of what's going on. So I encourage people to do that, victoradare.ca. Meantime, Vic, I'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award, and I'll tell you, it's a head shaker. As Blacklock's reporter notes, this week, Finance Minister Christia Freeland is under investigation by the Commissioner of Elections over a social policy post tagged by Twitter as fake news. The post featured a doctored clip of Aaron O'Toole discussing private care in an interview with Kate Harrison, the director of the Ottawa polling firm Abacus Data. And Harrison agreed, by the way, with Twitter in the, uh, about the doctored clip and said it was misleading, stating, in quotes, as the person who asked the question, I'm disappointed to see the video was manipulated to exclude important context. You know what, I have no idea what the finance minister and her staff were thinking. Why do they think that's above board and okay? And I think it speaks volumes. But don't worry, I don't think there's ever going to be a shortage of partisan apologists. But why do they think the public is, ready, is not ready for an honest debate on our election issues instead of the positioning our p- opponents in a misleading way? I mean, we should simply command a higher standard from our politicians, but I don't think we will. But here's the other, and I think it's even the more important part of the goofy, because it's a much bigger problem, and that's our inability to have an honest discussion regarding healthcare, one where those suggesting changes and innovations are not demonized. I mean, for goodness sakes, in the most recent Commonwealth Fund Index ranking, Canada finished 10th out of 11 well-to-do economies when it comes to healthcare. I mean, for years, studies have found us near the bottom when it comes to access to MRIs and other modern technology or surgical wait times. Before the pandemic, was, what, nothing for 50 to 60,000 Canadians a year to be forced to leave the country in order to secure timely care. But more than that, I mean, come on, the private bugaboo, that's a bit much. I mean, it's an absolute farce, given we live in a country where doctors' offices are private, so are dentists, ophthalmologists, physios, many of the x-ray facilities we'd use, or the walk-in clinics, because the fact is about 30% of all healthcare funding in this country is spent on private care. Yet politicians or so-called friends of Medicare, advocates for a failing status quo, pretend that private care doesn't exist. It's an insult to all of our intelligence. I mean, and also, let's not forget that MPs, military personnel, federal prisoners, RCMP, all avoid the wait times in the public sector by using private facilities. Maybe BC is the worst example, by the way. BC NDP government spent millions of tax dollars in an attempt to shut down the private Camby Street Surgery Center which was started in B.C. by the B.C. NDP in order to have injured union workers jump the queue in the public system. Yet we also know NDP cabinet ministers and the MLAs have been frequent users of the private clinic, but they know their identity is protected by doctor-patient confidentiality. I bet they hope there's never a leak. But the more important issue is our inability to have a rational, fact-based discussion on needed healthcare reform. And given only North Korea and Canada outlaw private care, I think uh, private care better be part of the debate, especially given that after a year of looking at the evidence in the Shawili case, Supreme Court Justices McLaughlin Major Ambassador Ash concluded, in quotes, the evidence refutes the government's theoretical contention that a prohibition on private insurance is linked to maintaining quality public health care. And they go on to say, in quotes, many Western democracies that do not impose a monopoly on the delivery of healthcare have successfully delivered to their citizens medical services that are superior to and more affordable than the services that are presently available in Canada. You know what? We need leadership when it comes to healthcare, But goodness knows, I don't think it's anywhere to be found. That's it for this week's Money Talk show. I hope you grab and tell everybody about it. And I hope you join me next week. My thanks.
0: Subscribe to the Money Talks with Michael Campbell podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your on demand audio for the complete show, daily podcasts, and more.